providing it. We're going to be in Psalm 85 tonight. Psalm 85. And um, uh, as usual, <laughs> as usual, there <laughs> turned out to be a whole lot more in this psalm than I anticipated. Um, and and uh, it, in some sense, we uh, I kind of fell down a rabbit hole, uh, Psalm 85, and um, and uh, I, I'm I'm going to take you down that rabbit hole with me uh, for a little while tonight because it is it it unpacks and helps us understand why this psalm was written. Um, let's read together. Psalm 85, O Lord, you show favor to your land. You did restore the captivity of Jacob. You did forgive the iniquity of your people, and you did cover all their sin. Selah. That means think about it. Pause just a moment. You did withdraw all your fury, and you did turn away from your burning anger. Here the psalmist um, begins to unpack uh, the faithfulness of God. This is God's faithfulness on display in their own experience with, with the Lord. Now, um, this is a prayer for the nation of Israel, for, for uh, God's people, and it is uh, directed to the choir director and noted as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? We've talked about this often as we've uh, made it through the psalms. They are the Levitical singers that were set apart for the, uh, the temple worship. Um, and the, it's curious to me that it is indeed written by these Levitical singers, these worship leaders, if you will. Um, now, the context here is, is really important, and it's, gonna, it's kind of the rabbit hole that we're going to go down. But let's get through these first three verses, and then we'll, we'll go down the rabbit hole together. All right. Oh, Lord, verse 1, oh, Lord, that's Yahweh. Um, the self-existent one, the eternal name of God. And, and it's important for us to understand that this is the unspeakable name of God. We, we say Yahweh because uh, that's the only way we can really articulate Y-H-W-H. If, if I was simply to say Yahweh, you wouldn't hear it, right? Without the vowels. And it's meant to be that way because it's the unspeakable name. Um, now he said, the psalmist says that you show, you showed favor to your land. Um, that that idea of favor is, I think, an interesting one. I I uh, often pray for the Lord's favor in people's lives. Um, I pray it very often for my, my daughter and son-in-law that the Lord would just show them his favor. And, and so what in the world does that actually mean? 
Well, if we unpack that word here in the Hebrew, it has to do specifically with satisfying a debt. That, that would not have occurred to me just looking at the English language. Favor, uh, indeed, it does speak of delight, enjoyment, um, uh, being one who we would set our affection on, setting our affection on somebody, showing them favor. But it is specifically related to the idea of satisfying debt, to pardon, in other words. And, and that's significant because it really works in concert with the, the following thoughts. Now, you've showed favor on your, to your land. What is the land? Well, we would, we would typically say, well, surely that's the, the land of Israel or the promised land. And indeed it is. It speaks of the inheritance of God's people. And we need to step back from that just a little bit and ask the question, what does inheritance mean? Who does inheritance go to? It goes to the heirs, right? It goes to the family of. And that's precisely what um, the psalmist is saying. You see, inheritance denotes identity. And identity denotes specific people or persons. Now, the next three lines expound upon these first uh, first uh, lines, bringing clarity to the words favor and to land. In other words, we see this often in the Psalms, the, the coupling of verses, the second explaining the first, and that's really what we see here. You restored the captivity of Jacob is the next line. Um, what is the captivity? What If you restore captivity, does that mean you, you bring back captivity? That doesn't seem right, does it? No. In fact, um, the word restored is the exact same root as the word favor translated just earlier. It is to be, to be pleased with, but specifically to satisfy a debt. In other words, the psalmist is saying, you restored the debt. You restored the debt of Jacob. Now, this word captivity um, surely means uh, uh, being prisoners, more specifically being exiles. Um, and we have to stop and ask this question, what is the captivity of Jacob? I think on, the, on first blush, well, I think I go right directly to the idea of, uh, well, first of all, who is Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac, right? And his name is changed to Israel in an encounter with God. So he's the father of a nation, right? He's, um, Abraham is the, the, his grandfather. And so, so uh, Israel or the nation of Israel takes on his name. Why? Because the 12 tribes are Jacob's 12 sons. Now, what is the captivity of Jacob? I Initially, I go straight to the idea of, well, that's certainly speaking of their captivity in Egypt, right? I mean, after all, um, Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, 
In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out, set out from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel... Those are the same people, all right? And the Lord, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And there are words, uh, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. That's God's message to the, the sons of Jacob, right? Uh, there after their captivity in, in uh, Egypt. It's interesting. He says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that ring a bell to any of you New Testament scholars? Absolutely it does. First Peter speaks of, of we being identified as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a house of the Lord. And we being believers in Christ Jesus. Now, um, now, that is one idea. That is one idea of the captivity of Jacob. However, there is a second that I think perhaps fits even better. Uh, first of all, the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm. Where, does, where do they show up? They show up as the Levitical singers at the dedication of the temple. Um, and and uh, that is long, long, long generations after the uh, children of Israel came out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness prior to inhabiting the promised land. Long, long time before. Um, now, they could be speaking historically, that makes sense, but I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ezra. Turn to the book of Ezra. It's, it's uh, going to be the left, to the left of where you are. Um, the captivity of Jacob could also refer to the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Now, we know that uh, Israel was hauled off to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it is a, he is the, the king of Syria, the king of the Syrian empire, which is, was um, the, the greatest kingdom in the entire world at that time. And um, we see here a story of restoration that um, is really curious to me, and I think a very, very significant connection to this psalm. I would like to say, welcome to my rabbit hole, okay? Ezra, chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 1. 
this is Cyrus, King Cyrus's uh, proclamation. Cyrus is the king of Persia, and he comes after Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, note Jeremiah is a contemporary. He is, he is uh, a prophet who spoke to the people before and during their exile to um, Babylon. Now, the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. He put it in writing. This is official business. Saying, thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. How wild is that? <laughs> this is a man who, uh, a king who uh, has no connection to the people of Israel apart from the fact that they are slaves in his kingdom and God moves on his heart let me ask you this does God move on the hearts of unbelievers absolutely he does and in particular the hearts of even unbelieving leaders because he is he is the one who fashions history we have to remember that in, the, in, in times of adversity and difficulty and we feel like things are spinning out of control. We, I've heard it often said, people kind of throw it off and I think sometimes even it's fatalism. Oh, God's in control. He must be in control. I've got to have faith in that. Well, yes, we do. And we absolutely can trust that God is um, fashioning history according to his plan now um, uh, jump down to verse 7 also king cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the lord which nebuchadnezzar had carried away from jerusalem and put into the house of his gods and cyrus king of persia had brought them out by the hand of of uh, mithrida the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Um, the prince of Judah, at the first return of the exile in Babylon, usually identified as the Babylonian name uh, in Sheshbazar. This is Zerubbabel. Now, who in the world is Zerubbabel? Well, he is a leader among God's people, even there um, in in. Uh, the, the, the return to Jerusalem. Now, we see there uh, in, the, in the following verses the, the identification of what those things are, those articles that he took with him, with him into, uh, from the house of the Lord into um, uh, Babylon. So now Jeremiah previously spoke of this very restoration 
Remember, he is a contemporary in this time of captivity. Jeremiah 30, verse 18 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I, rest I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city will be rebuilt on its ruin, and the place will stand in its rightful place. That's what Jeremiah prophesied, and it is coming about in the time of Cyrus. Um, now, now, uh, back in uh, verse 2 of Psalm 85, I didn't say keep your thumb there. Um, I meant to. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 85, but keep your thumb in Ezra because we're going to go back there, all right? Uh, verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sin. Selah. You forgave. The word forgave means to lift. I like that imagery. What happens in the midst of sin? We become guilty, right? And what does God do when he forgives us? He lifts the burden of guilt off of us. And their iniquity, uh, that means exactly what we typically connect it to. It's perversity, moral perversity that... Um, that uh, is associated with that word. Now, you covered all their sins. The word cover is very interesting because, um, yes, it means to, to cover as with clothing, but more than that, it has the connotation of filling up the hollow spots. Think about it. In our lives, uh, there very often are places, voids in our lives and the, that are there as a result or the consequence of our sin. And, and God's covering of that in his forgiveness is the filling up of those voids. I love that imagery because it speaks of, it, it's, not, it's, it's not simply covering up an unsightly thing. It's making right that which was lacking making full that which was lacking. And the word sin um, has to do with uh, the idea of habitual uh, sinfulness, um, things that, he's, uh, that, that we do over and over. Verse 3, you withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. You withdrew. That word withdrew actually means to gather or uh, to take away. So when you, when you take something away from, say, if I'm going to take a bunch of flowers from you, what do I do? I gather them to myself. It's interesting that, that the, the scripture here says you withdrew all your fury. You gathered all your fury back to yourself. When we think of Jesus being the one who took the penalty of our sin and the wrath of God rested on him, that imagery really comes alive, doesn't it? The wrath of God, the fury of God brought back to himself. Now, you withdrew... Um, uh, that that uh, you withdrew your fury. The fury is again uh, the anger, the rage, the wrath of God. 
you turned away from your burning anger. That burning anger uh, imagery there is, is um, the flaring of the nostrils. <laughs> Rapid breathing in and out. Passionate anger. Um, and so the, the psalmist says, that's what you did, God. You were, you were if we find ourselves in that kind of a spot, um, typically, people around us would say, you're out of control, right? And, and so what we see here is the imagery of God being on the verge of even destroying those he loves and then withdrawing. That's an immense amount of discipline. It's, writ it, it's written in the grace of God. And I, I, I love that imagery. Now, um, uh, this, this uh, you did turn away from your burning anger. Now, this idea of um, all these, these verses 2 and 3 kind of uh, give revelation to what verse 1 actually means. And so when we look about you show favor to the land, God's favor includes restoration, restoring that which was taken or lost. It, it includes forgiveness of iniquity, then the lifting up and the lifting off of fault or guilt. And it means the covering of sin, filling in the holes, the, the hollow places left by habitual sin in our lives, um, and, and the penalty of that. It also includes the idea of covering our guilt, clothing us with, instead of guilt, with the righteousness of Christ, declaring us not guilty. And God's favor also includes the removal of his anger toward our sin. That's important for us to grasp. This, this, this picture of God's favor includes all of these things. Restoration, forgiveness, the clothing of righteousness, the removing of anger. Um, and then the psalmist says, Selah. And what he's saying right there is contemplate these things. Take a moment. This is the legacy of God's people. A people who have experienced his favor. Recalling God's provision in the past is a very important part of our present petitions. Let me say, about, say that again. Recalling God's provision in the past is a very important part of our present petitions. And that's the pattern that we see in Psalm 85. Many of us live between the memory of God's faithfulness to us in the past and hoping for that, the repeat of that faithfulness in the future. Um, and we recall what God has done in the past, and we thank him for it. We're very grateful for that. And we hope that he will do it again. Um, and, and this makes us able to go through uh, situations in the present and in the future that 
cause us sorrow or cause us discouragement. We know, we look in the past and we see, God, you rescued us then. You covered our sin. You showed us your favor then. Show us your favor again. And, and that is the seedbed of hope in our lives. Now, again, this le- legacy is memorialized here in Psalm 85. Um, the psalmist moves from recalling God's favor in the past now to reaching for his forgiveness in the present. Why this sudden flip-flop? God, you've been so gracious, so faithful. You've been showed us your favor. And now, here in verse 4, he begins this, um, this recollection of this, or this, this cry for restoration. Read it with me. Verse 4, restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause the indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with, with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you, will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Showing us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant to us the, your salvation. It's almost as if a, 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 a switch has been flipped here. And there's good reason for that. And here I'd like for us to go back to Ezra, this time in chapter 2. And this is, this is uh, I'm going to call this a, a kind of a brief overview, but it is indeed a rabbit hole, okay? We're going we're gonna to go down it together. Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. Now, go down to verse 64. The whole assembly numbered 42,360, besides their male and female servants, who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. It's it's, It's curious to me that there is this very exact number. That is a description of the fact that this, there's very good record keeping going on here, right? And this is a measurable event in history it's not just a generic idea oh god save them from captivity no this is very very specific um and and he goes on to speak of the number of horses and mules and camels and donkeys um now let's go to verse uh, chapter three verse one Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem and built the altar of God, the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it. And as it was written in the law of Moses and uh, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Take note that they were terrified of the people of the land. They had been sent by King Cyrus, and they, they had his official bidding, but they were afraid of the people around them. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Now in the second year of their coming, they've been there a couple years now, 
to the house of God at Jerusalem. In the second month, Zerubbabel uh, and the rest of their brothers and priests and the Levites, all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work of the house of the Lord. They began to work on the temple and to rebuild it together. Now, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers of households and said to them, let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of the king of Assyria, who who brought us up here. But and and what 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 is that about? Well, it's about the repopulating of a land that's been vacated by his people. That's the way. Um, that's the way uh, these armies created domination in the in the area they took peoples from another land and transplanted them here there were those and there were others who were left behind to tend uh, some of the ground as well but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God But we ourselves will build together the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And now... In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. This this business of discouragement happened throughout multiple reigns. of the kingdom of Persia. This was an ongoing battle, discouragement going on. Now, verse 11 of chapter 4, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to Artaxerxes. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king of the Jews who came up from you uh, have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished. They will not pay tribute, customer toll, uh, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. They're getting the king all worked up. Jump down to verse 17. Then the king sent an answer to Rahum, the commander, skip ahead. So now issue a decree to make these men stop the work that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Jumping ahead a bit. Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes', Artaxerxes document was read, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. And then the work of the house of God in Israel ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So they were successful in bringing the rebuilding of, of the city and the temple in specific uh, to an end. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, jumping forward just a bit, began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So they, the, the prophets said, wait a second, guys, we have a mandate. And that mandate is not only from King Cyrus, but it is from the Lord himself. And we need to get busy. At that time, the governor of the province beyond the river came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued a decree to rebuild this temple and finish the structure? Then we were told, we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this, this building. Whoops. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jew, Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could be, come to Darius, and then a reply be returned concerning it. Jump down to verse 6. This is the copy of the letter which the governor sent to Darius the king. To Darius the king, all peace, let it be known that the king, that we have gone to the province of Judah and the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones, beams, etc. Then we asked the elders and said to them, thus, who issued the decree to rebuild the temple to finish? And this, thus they answered us saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Who is that? Solomon, right? And But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also, the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These, this, these king, this king Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one of those whose name was Sheshabar. And we know that's Zerubbabel, right? And he appointed him governor. And he said to him, take these utensils, go deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem. Let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then, then that Sheshabar, or Zerubbabel, came and laid the foundation of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, has, it has been under construction, and it is not completed yet. yet. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search, get this, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which there is, uh, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning the matter. Remember, King Cyrus wrote it down. There is a paper trail. And so now we read in chapter 6 that 
that King Darius issues the response, the decree. And search, he 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 uh, decrees a search be made in the archives where the treasures were stored uh, in Babylon. A scroll was found, and there was written on it this memorandum, and it gives uh, Cyrus's. A complete decree for them to go build the temple. Now, I'm going to skip forward um, uh, chapter 7. Now, uh, verse, verse 1. I, I'm going to condense verses 1 through 26. Now, after these things, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up uh, Ezra, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, and he gave him carte blanche, basically, to do anything that the Lord instructed him to do. Now, um, uh, he gave him um, authority to accomplish... Uh, all that the Lord would instruct Ezra to do in the rebuilding of the temple. Let's uh, uh, skip forward to chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, verse 31. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Verse 36, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of God. All the weight was recorded at that time. Remember the utensils that were being brought back? It's, all of it was measured and, and delivered. The exile who, came, uh, who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Um, all this then was miraculously given as the favor of God upon the people of Israel in the return to uh, rebuild the temple. But now we come to chapter 9. All of this, we're down in the bottom of this rabbit hole now, aren't we, right? Chapter 9, there is a turn. We've seen the favor of God just poured out on God's people. Verse 1, now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, this is Ezra speaking, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites are not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. For they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons and so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this manner, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Do you think he was upset? Absolutely. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on the account of the unfaithfulness of the exile gathered to me, and I sat appalled until evening, uh, the evening offering. Then he offers a prayer of confession. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humi humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen 
above our heads, and our guilt is, has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword and to captivity and to plunder and to open shame, as it is this day. But now, but now for a brief moment, Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an encamped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place. And our God may enlighten our, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we, for we are slaves, yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, giving, uh, to, extending us, reviving to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah, in Jerusalem. Skipping down a little bit, I'm not sure which verse. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquity deserves and have given us an escape remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant, nor any who escaped? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant. As it is this day, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. This is where Psalm 85 emerges. I hope that rabbit hole was worthwhile for you. Because it speaks, of, it speaks of God's favor being extended and yet his commandments being ignored. God's wrath is returned because Israel has sinned again. And their purity as God's people, a people of his own possession, is violated by intermarrying and the acceptance of pagan practices. And Yahweh was not their one and only God. Thus the psalmist continues. Let's look at the finishing of Psalm 85. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Restore us. It, it means to turn back and return to the starting point. Think about that. The restoration of God in our lives is such that he takes us back to where we started. In my view, that is profoundly beautiful because... Um, because it erases all the stupidity that happened between then and now. Like, oh God, 
is uh, Elohim, the mighty God, the God of our salvation, the God of liberty, deliverance. And then in verses 5 and 6, he has these questions, will you, will you, will you? And these are honest questions, but they are, re- they are laced with a request for mercy. And then in verse 7, he says, show us. That means show us so that we can actually see it. Help us see, reveal, make your loving kindness unmistakable, God. Your loving kindness, your chesed, your favor, your mercy, your covenant love. And then he says, grant to us. That means simply to give, but also with the idea of um, assigning it to you, appointing it to you. Grant us, Lord, your salvation. And the word, it's the same word that is used in, in verse 4 in speaking of the God of our salvation. And it's important to us to understand that salvation here is seen as part of God's identity. It's not, it's not only what he provides, it's who he is. And so what we see in this is God grant us your salvation. Grant yourself to us. That makes shivers go down my spine. 1 John. First John chapter 1, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Same book, chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You've heard me say before, propitiation is, is the payment for, that big fancy word, but it's not as though God just came up to, to the teller window and said, here, let me pay for him. Yeah. No. He... He stepped out and gave himself. He himself is the propitiation of our sin, the payment for our sin. Um, Verse 8 and 9, I will hear what the Lord God will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. I will hear what God will say. Prayer is a two-way street, isn't it? We often think of prayers simply emanating from ourselves to God, but the way God intends it is that it's a conversation. And so I will hear what God will say is very important. So what will God say to this request for forgiveness and restoration? What God says is in the following verses. He says, peace. Shalom is the word. It means wholeness, welfare, prosperity, health, favor. It's all-encompassing. It's an all-encompassing word of salvation. 
Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle writes, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so that he that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, when you are, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's own household. He is our peace. Understand that the word salvation, um, grant us salvation means grant us, the word Yeshua means salvation. Yeshua is that word that is translated for us, Jesus. He himself is our salvation. The second half of verse 8 but let them not turn back to folly. Um, in a good sense, uh, this means let them, um, let them trust. Let them trust. But in a bad sense, it means uh, let them not descend into silliness. In other words, it speaks of confidence and folly together. Folly is presumptuous confidence. <laughs> Stupidity marked by trust in yourself. Grace must never create presumption. We've got to remember that. The grace of God is immense, but it d shall not, it should not ever create presumption on our part. Oh, I'll do it because God will forgive me anyway. Don't find yourself there. Verse 9, salvation is near to those who fear him. Salvation is close at hand for those who know God's power and position as the, the almighty judge. That glory may dwell in your land. God himself is that glory. Zechariah, remember Zechariah is a contemporary of Jeremiah who prophesied during the time of captivity. He writes in chapter 2, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking to me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. And I will be the glory in her midst. Now we recognize this as uh, both a prophetic word, speaking of the restoration of Jerusalem, but it's also apocalyptic, speaking of the new Jerusalem as well. So with deliverance, God's glory comes. 
And that's the very presence of God himself dwelling among his people. Um, verse 10. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps uh, make his footsteps into a way. Note the juxtaposition of loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness, covenant love, and truth. Truth requires payment. A weighing out. Payment for our sin. But loving kindness embodies mercy before the law. Righteousness requires perfection, but peace embodies wholeness and completeness. In other words, with the reality of sin, it is overwhelmed, overcome by the abundance of grace producing peace. Verse 11, truth is the reality, the, uh, the raw humanity of earth sullied with sin. But righteousness is perfect rightness born out of heaven. Verse 12, God will display his goodness and our land, the inheritance of God's people, will produce what he intended. And verse 13, righteousness that is in a right relationship with God and with his people. Righteousness is mentioned in three of these last four verses. And indeed, it is the way. It is the only way. And it is accomplished in our way, in our lives, by the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And who is that? Jesus. God's saving grace is what binds mercy and peace on the one hand to his kingdom order or his law, truth and righteousness on the other hand. His grace is what enables them to be melded together. What the psalmist writes is beautiful in that this, this idea that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Martin Luther wrote, God's holiness and God's love kiss at the cross. You see, only Jesus can satisfy both the righteousness and the love of God. He expresses the grace of God in giving forgiveness only because he pays our debt. Oswald Chambers makes the point very clearly. It is not the love of God that saves us. It is the justification of our sin, the justification of us 
through Jesus' payment on the cross that saves us. But that is given to us as a gift because of the love of God. You see, salvation is not possible apart from Jesus paying that debt. And it's given to us by the grace of God. It's expressed to us as his favor. And so Psalm 85 ends where it started. Speaking of God's favor. Let's pray together. Lord, how we are so blessed by by this glorious revelation that your grace is what binds all of this together. The righteousness demanded by the law and your grace and mercy expressed in Jesus. Lord, we are in awe of the fact that you would even conceive of extending your favor to us. And yet we with the psalmist would ask boldly for it. Thank you for the privilege of coming before you with such a request. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.